underscore June 21st, 2021. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 677. Hardcore Musicals. Hey, it's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. And guys, I want to ask you a question. Do you know what a little podcast is? Because there was a medium, and it was dying. Because Spotify was giving $60 million deals to 27-year-olds who started their first podcast a couple years ago. But I remember the old days of the Overthinking It podcast. And this is how it went. Da, 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 da. I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hi, Matt. And Mr. Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hello, Matthew. Just we, join you here in the neighborhood. In the, the neighbor, podcast neighborhood. In the podcast neighborhood, there was a dying medium, and we had a little dream. Yes, uh, we had a little dream, and that little dream was that we could go back to the theater, that there would be a summer movie season once again, and uh, it's kicked off and then some with In the Heights, the uh, film adaptation of the stage musical with songs and words by Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame. And, uh, he, uh, uh, also originated the title role. Um, not, uh, doesn't play the title role in, uh, in the film. He's way, way too old for it now. This is a thing from like two decades ago. Uh, but now played by, by, uh, Anthony Ramos, who was, um, who was Lawrence and Philip in, in the original, in the Broadway cast of Hamilton. So, uh, you know, there is a, and actually, uh, the actor who plays George Washington in Hamilton shows up, uh, as the Mr. Softy guy. So, uh, it's, you know, there, there's a bit of a reunion if you're an LMM fan from, from Hamilton. And, and hey, if you're an LMM fan from In the Heights, I, I'm not sure what you'll think of this because, uh, this is our first, this is our first encounter with it in this, uh, in this format, the, the movie musical so mark i understand you went to an actual theater just as a way of getting us into the conversation tell us a little bit about it was it was it magical was it a uh was it like a little dream i'm not gonna lie it kind of was awesome um i, I you know you, you might expect us you know your, your high priests of pop culture to be you know so jaded by various spirits that's actually not true no if you've been listening to this show for quite a long time you know how much we love going to the movie theater and it was actually quite emotional so i was surprised by how emotional i felt especially because um well here's the thing about um going to the movies is that they crank up the sound and it sounds great and it's nice and loud and in addition to merely just um experiencing the senses with your eyes and your ears you also feel it all the vibration it is quite an all-encompassing sort of thing and um you know as a musical uh, is meant to do it heightens all those emotions and you really feel it in a in a different kind of way and that big opening number with the exuberance and the people out in the street and you know not having to wear masks and you know <laughs> worry about um a, a crippling public health crisis instead of having to worry about um all sorts of other you know mundane things in their lives um it was all it was it was nice it was magical um i was very glad to be back in the movies and i think it sounds like based on the way that we were talking about this movie before i might have enjoyed it um uh, one or two ticks more than you two did. And I would ascribe a lot of that to this enjoyment of being in a dark theater, um, you know, with uh, really in the moment and enjoying it with, with other people who were uh, clapping and crying and, um, and, uh, and, and kind of participating in it all together. Well, I, w- so I watched it in two sittings and roughly, uh, roughly uh, on the best streaming service, HBO max. Uh, yeah, sure. absolutely. No, I watched it on my Peloton as I was, uh, as I was <laughs> pedaling along and it, it really helped to time my, uh, pedal strokes to the beats of the music. It really helped me uh, feel like I was one of the dancers in the, in the swimming pool number. Um, man, that pool would have felt good after that, uh, exhausting Peloton workout that I got. No, but, but, uh, we took a break. It got, it got late. I mean, uh, you know, we've, we've reached the age where like going, being tired is enough of a reason to stop a movie <laughs> and go to bed. Whereas I feel like our younger selves would be horrified by that, by like not, you know, not only because we would assemble triple and quadruple features of like starship troopers and the Hudsucker proxy and you know i yeah i i don't even know the the stuff is stuff that that got into the obscure i suppose and and uh and you know we would just 
grind it out. Uh, it's more fun than I'm making it sound. But now it's like, eh, I'm kind of yawning a little bit. Let's switch this off and come back to it tomorrow. I guess enabled by the atmosphere of, of like, of abundance of plenty that, uh, streaming gives you as opposed to the atmosphere of scarcity that having to return the tape to Blockbuster tomorrow gave you when it was just like, uh, you know, you had to, you had to, to squeeze it all in. You had to, to see all the things. So, but I, you know, we ended up seeing it, I guess, in a way that sort of approximated act one and act two of, uh, of a Broadway musical, even though you're not supposed to do them on, on successive nights. And, you know, I will say that I enjoyed, uh, uh, a lot of it. And I, I like, the, the, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm a sucker for like singing and dancing. Like that stuff just, I, I enjoy it. I like, I like watching it. I enjoy watching people's talent. You know, like it, it makes me feel happy that there are good singers and dancers, um, in the world. And, you know, the fact that that maybe sort of brings some critical faculties to it, uh, to bear might, might lead to some, I, I wouldn't say criticisms, but I think questions, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, did, didn't affect my, my experience of, experience of viewing. Though the, the need to, the need to constantly adjust the, uh, the volume did. I don't know about, how about you, Pete? What, what was your viewing experience like? And did you have to constantly adjust the volume? Oh, yeah. The, this was, I've, I've often run into the issue, uh, <laughs> excuse me, of, um, having to adjust the volume on movies that I watch on streaming services. But this was by far the worst movie that i've ever experienced <laughs> sorry sorry can Wait, I Pete, it's that? the worst movie you've ever experienced well, of I all I, of all movies please don't quote me on that what <laughs> i mean is that okay so here's how i what i understand is happening right what i understand and i think the reason why this movie was so hard for me to watch is that when movies are encoded into digital media for playing in home theaters there is a preference for the surround sound that you would experience in a fancy home theater or in a movie theater, right? And as a result, if you don't have a surround sound setup and you only have a couple of uh, a stereo TV, I have a pretty old, I have a plasma TV, right? So it's, yep. it's, it's a big plasma TV. It's got a great picture. I'm not particularly eager to get rid of it. Um, blacks, the blacks really pop and all that. It's really nice. Um, but, uh, but the sound on it is not so great. And because of that, whenever a sound in a movie would play from multiple speakers at once, it gets really loud. And this is like my conjecture or guess as to why this is happening, right? And if it only is going to play in one or two, one speaker, it gets really, really quiet. And this is, I think, a movie from the sense, Mark, from what you said to us beforehand, where they saturate the theater with this just full surrounding experience of a street carnival, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which which means that in the musical parts of this movie, my TV was incredibly loud. And in the dialogue parts of the movie, it was inaudible, even at like close to max volume. So I had to turn my TV. I mean, I usually watch TV at like an 18 right on the scale, the, the arbitrary scale of units. When it gets really loud, I turn it up to like a 25, 26. I would never turn it up to a 30 on any show. I had to watch the quiet parts of this movie at a 60. What? Like literally, literally twice as loud as any show I've ever watched in order to barely hear. I had to watch this movie with subtitles because I couldn't hear the dialogue, um, which I think is part of why I was so confused about what was happening uh, and why I was sort of like, this is pointless. None of this makes any sense. And it's like because because of HBO Max and my old plasma TV, I couldn't follow the dialogue scenes. And uh, and and of course, when you have a sleeping baby, you don't really have the option of just leaving it really loud. You have to be constantly on the on the button, turning it up and down. So I end up actually watching a bunch of this on my phone, uh, which I also don't recommend for big movie musicals. Yeah, right. <laughs> so so uh, guys, so. the GoFundMe for a uh, for a nice sound bar for Pete's plasma TV because he's right. Don't if you have the the plasma, that's like that's like having a. I don't know. That's like having a classic car or something that just runs great and is just going to be wonderful forever. Uh, is it really hard? Is it heavy and difficult to move? Yes, it's extremely heavy. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, but we're going to give him a sound bar. We're going to get him a... <laughs> Would that uh, fix all this? 
Yeah, yeah I mean, if you, you just yeah. it would go a just, long way towards it. Yeah, and it's yeah. not expensive either. Just yeah. plug the plug the sound into a into a modern audio system, and you'll get your like classic awesome picture with your super black blacks, and and you'll get your uh, you'll get your modern modern sound. You know, we don't even need to get you the the radio connected like surround speakers. We just getting a sound bar would go a long way towards uh, towards making your life a little better. There's, there's really no kind of movie that benefits more from being seen in a theater than a big movie musical. Still one of my favorite theatrical experiences ever was seeing the old 50s 3D Kiss Me Kate. Yes. Uh, you know, in the theater uh, one time, a print of that. Uh, and it's like the colors are beautiful. The music yeah, is that? all around I, you. I was there. That was like Film Forum or like the Angelica yeah. or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Down in the Lower East, down in the East Village. Yeah, yeah it was so sure. it was so good. Do you remember the the first the first number was Too Darn Hot uh, from the thing? And it was like, what? We're going to do this as a musical? And here's a number. It's called Too Darn Hot. And they did this whole whole production number and then comes back and it's the it's the gag from seeing it singing in the rain it comes back to the executive and it's like yeah i don't see it i don't uh <laughs> i don't see how this is a 3d movie too <laughs> yeah exactly oh man so mark so it was really cool to watch in the theater oh yeah for all the reasons you just described yeah. right the big production numbers the, the intense sound um the choreography the colors um that swimming pool scene which yeah. you just described before in particular just a a riot of activity. I feel um, like that swimming that pool scene that stirred the soul. That needs to be done Muppets 4D style from from Disney World where like they splash you with water mm. with little sprinkles of water as the swimming pool as all the dancers are are splashing around in the public pool. Um uh. that 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 would help. Yeah, um but uh going back to Pete like you know you're you're concerned about not going to be able to follow the 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 plot um due to uh, the in, inaudible dialogue um I, I got news for you pete uh there ain't much of a plot to follow <laughs> in this so it wasn't just me it wasn't just the fact that i had difficulty following no. it so like so here's how i understand it may, may i kind of try to put forward what i picked up from this what happens you tell me if yeah, it's pete, right what, or not what even happened in this movie okay so this and this is a so okay the first thing is that the movie is very is not clear on when it's taking place Right. But we know from information outside of the movie that this is a musical that was on Broadway in 2005. And even though there are certain contemporary political things that are put into the movie, there are also certain anachronisms that aren't contemporary that are in the movie. So, for example, the main character is both, you know, at the ripe old age of 30, a big fan of Sonia Sotomayor. And also listened to cassette tapes of Big Pun in a particular park in Washington Heights when he was in high school, right? Which, of course, would have been six or seven years after Big Pun died. Uh, and also after uh, tapes no longer were used for anything other than, I guess, maybe for super cool people. So it's so there's like weird anachronisms. And so are we, and it's, I mean, it's a more movie substantively, people, Pete, uh, yeah. well, one quick correction that uh, it hit Broadway in 2008. Um, it oh. first had its first tryout in 2005. So it's, gotcha. it's, it's been in the works for a long time. But another major anachronism in this movie is that they were able to sell a car service business for a substantial amount of money. Yes. Where, but you do see people walking around with iPads and iPhones. And yeah, yeah it's like funny. That. Uber yeah, yeah. hasn't like, you know, in this fantastical world, uh, Uber hasn't swallowed the business hole. There's a certain amount of moral luck in this movie in the sense of like things that in this movie that don't really work because the world has changed. And one of them is like, no, don't sell the cab company in 2005. And we're all like, sell the cab company in 2000. <laughs> you could pay your daughter's college tuition by selling your cab company in 2005. Do it. <laughs> right. Like that is the right call. Right. And of course, the movie makes it seem like it's a really hard decision. Right. And it's a really big cost to the community. And it's not clear. But so so here's my understanding. And it's, yeah, it's a movie in which everybody has a cell phone, but nobody uses a cell phone because when the script was written, there were nobody had cell phones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now that the movie's being made, everybody has cell phones. So everybody has a cell phone, but they only use the light. They only lose the flashlight feature. They don't use it to text each other. Um, so like that's there's like little things like that. It's like a movie that that sort of suffers from execution on the margins, partly because it's like a 15 year old show, uh, partly because it's like a movie that came out in a time where it seemed like movies might not actually be happening, maybe. And maybe just because, like, you know, it just isn't the tightest ship in the world. It's still big and a lot of fun and it's doing what it needs to do. Right. And also there's a lot of stuff it's doing that is impressive and interesting, uh, yeah. even if stuff like some of the editing is a little off or movie musicals are hard. Um, but but anyway, I want to say here's what I think the plot is. OK, 
So here's my sense, Mark, and you tell me whether I'm right or not, right? So the there is a generation of immigrants who came to New York City mostly in the mid to late 20th century, right? A lot of them are from the Dominican Republic, uh, although this is not a movie that is... So I will say, there is some small measure of controversy in this movie around different Latin identities. I don't feel qualified to speak about it in the podcast, but what I will say is that the the history of the island of Hispaniola, of the Dominican Republic, and of Haiti, especially within all of Latin America, is really interesting to learn about and harrowing and daunting and has a lot of effects, right? So, like, if you want... Washington, I think of Washington Heights as a Dominican neighborhood. If you want to... This movie is not particularly focused on it being Dominican uh, because it's more interested in a kind of pan-Hispanic, pan-Latin message, which is fine and cool. But if you want to learn more about that, I would encourage you to go read about that history because it's really fascinating. Anyway, that notwithstanding, um, a lot of the Dominican immigrants came to New York City in the 60s, 70s, 80s, right? Um, and this is the story of their children. So the parents have grown up and have established businesses and careers and are kind of thinking of moving on, right? It's like, well, where do I go now? I, I came here to make a life for my children. My children are adults now, right? And what do I do, right? And the kids are like, well, I was born here. My experience is totally different from my parents' experience. I could go anywhere. I don't have a reason to force me to stay here the way that my parents did because this was the only place that they could go when they were refugees, right? Um, so I could leave, but I love my neighborhood. And, I, and I'm worried that if I leave, then uh, the character of the neighborhood will kind of be eroded by my leaving. And I'm also betraying the trust of the neighborhood, right? And this is the sort of broad thematic point that's being made. And the story of the movie, of the musical, which is the cinematography and the shooting heavily involves hallways, bridges, windows. Uh, I, I, I th thought of it more as the camera is often focusing on the aperture rather than the actor, right? A person will be singing and the camera will be focused on a door they might walk through or a hallway they might be in um, or or a bridge, the George Washington Bridge looming over all of it in Washington Heights. Um, and so it's a question of there's this one beautiful moment where everybody's together. And this is this moment is called the Heights, right? And the question is like, we are in the Heights because we were in the sort of cultural, sort of four-dimensional neighborhood of Washington Heights where we have both the immigrants who came from Latin America and their kids who were thoroughly American, but also thoroughly part of their own culture, all living together, all kind of sharing their different stories, right? Uh, which come from different places. There's people from different countries. Uh, different cultures, different, you know, not really different music, um, but uh, not for not for the most part. I mean, it's Lin-Manuel Miranda, so it's his style. Um, but the idea is that the question is posed to a series of people as to whether they're going to stay in Washington Heights or not. And and a bunch of them decide to stay and a bunch of them decide to go and a bunch of them die. And 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 it's it's more supposed to be seen as kind of a character study where like each of their individual journeys are sort of part of this some question, which is finally raised at the end, which is like, what are the heights? The heights being both that sort of notional four dimensional space that exists not just with length, width and height, but in time. Right. Like in Gangs of New York style, like this this time, you know, this this time and place. Right. Is inseparable. You cannot be in this place without being in this time. Right. Afterwards, this is going to be the Brooklyn Bridge. Right. And now is when it is, you know, uh, the five points or wherever. I'm sure I'm getting geography wrong. But the point being that, like, the question is then posed at the end that the 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 framing device narrator, if not the protagonist, uh, you think the whole movie that he's left uh, to go back to the Dominican Republic, where his, his dad is from, his family's from and 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 launch the bar, found the bar or run the bar that his dad always wanted to run. Right, never could. Right. And he's sort of like he's repatriated. Right. He's taken the money that has come from a freak lottery win by his grandmother and he has repatriated it back to the Dominican Republic. And he's telling the story of this time when everything was beautiful in Washington Heights, the Heights. Right. Um, but it turns out he's in the Heights and he's come to believe in the Heights future and that the Heights might be in the future. Right. The notion that this four dimensional uh, Latin Hispanic neighborhood. Right. However you want to frame it, if you want to talk about and I mean that in terms of size and scope and who's in it. And are we talking about sort of like the larger Latin American diaspora in the United States? Are we talking about everybody or are we just talking about this area in the northwestern corner of Manhattan? 
um, not quite as far as where Lin-Manuel Miranda grew up uh, in Inwood. Um, but yeah, and that's the idea, right? Is that like at the end, he's like, actually, the heights haven't happened yet. I've decided that I'm going to thrive in the age of gentrification by launching a hipster clothing brand with my wife, right? <laughs> and it's, just, it's a, that's that's the cynical way of putting it, right? Is that this is the story of a guy who inherits a bodega and is really sad and scared because he knows the area is gentrifying and the bodega won't be a viable business. So instead of moving back to the Dominican Republic with the proceeds from selling the bodega, he decides to embrace gentrification by funding his girlfriend and then wife's like alternative uh upper 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 cool class clothing line which so, which appro- which not appropriates <laughs> but which commercializes the culture of its community right like <laughs> just to be clear but you're not saying that's what the movie actually was about it's about all the stuff you said earlier about the yeah, yeah, yeah. four-dimensional time and place yeah, and, the, and a character study of the characters and the neighborhood that they inhabit and yeah because and make. because because the passage of time and the change of the neighborhood in this movie is something that people are sad about, but it is not the problem they are trying to solve, right? And I think that this is important to understand about – I mean I grew up around this in New Jersey, right, right outside of New York, in that like no neighborhood lasts for more than like 50 or 60 years. Everybody moves, right? A, A couple generations of, or so, Yeah, right? exactly. Like every all these people have relatives who have already moved out to Queens, right, in real life. Right. Or the you Bronx, know, the, as the the, yeah. the beauty shop is about to do. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So like they've all everybody is moving these moments where your community is all in one place at the same time. They don't last forever. Right. Because, you know, the reason you're all there is because, you know, for some reason, there's some sort of external factor that caused you all to suffer at the same time. Right. In some other place. So it makes sense that you'd revert to the mean, given the the ability to do so. Right. And would eventually no longer be, you know, having to cluster together in these enclaves. Right. Because um, you, you weren't doing that back home. Right. And so you're not eventually going to do it forever here. But, yeah, the idea that, like, is Washington Heights done in terms of being this kind of neighborhood or does it have a future? And is, is this sort of is part of that future the enshrinement of the culture of that neighborhood in sort of mythology and song and art, which you could say is similar to like little Italy, right? Like little Italy hasn't really been little Italy in like for like 80 years or something. Maybe not that long, but like a long time, right? In, in downtown Manhattan, but like the stories of little Italy still persist. And there's still some places that are little Italy that are there. I mean, little, um, little Italy has, has sort of persisted by becoming a, at least in places becoming a Disneyland of itself. Yeah, yeah, which is not what's park. being suggested here, but it's the idea that like you if you enshrine the people and the time in art, there's an ability somewhat to kind of persist past the kind of change that happens. But yeah, there's no hipster here who's vilified. There's no even though there is a Benny, there's nobody here to collect the rent. Right. <laughs> like, which is weird. Is it weird that there's a Benny in this show? I thought it was weird um, that it's like a clean cut, a clean cut black man named Benny who is also in Rent uh, with the same name, playing a, not the same part, but it was, it was just a weird confluence. It would how, be like, yeah, a French he, guy stealing bread named Jean. How are how, like, how they going to pay? How are they going to pay? How are they, they going to pay? pay? Well, by by winning the lottery, I think. By, uh, except, gonna... except not, though, right? <laughs> so the the as Pete was saying, like the, the the all the economics around this, and as we were alluding to with the Uber stuff and the car service business before, uh, the economics around this are, are pretty muddled. So let's just like, uh, just make set table stakes here for that uh, lottery ticket, which is important but kind of isn't important, and like what that uh, signifies in this movie or or doesn't, right? Okay, so like you know they 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 learn that the, the lottery board calls and they inform the bodega that the ninety six thousand dollar winning ticket was sold uh, from that bodega, and then there's a huge elaborate musical number the, that's the pool scene that we were talking about before that's staged around oh what would i do if i won this ninety six thousand dollars and uh, every major character has some sort of financial pressure and could use that money um but like the the, the conflicts kind of fizzle out over the money right like you know the, um uh, nina's father managed to sell the car service business to, to get Nina to go back to college um uh vanessa manages to get uh, co-signers so that you can move down to the to to the West Village and move out move out of the Heights. Um, the business that the beauty parlor business just moves as their plan was before because they they could afford that originally, right? <laughs> um, and, and the ninety six thousand the winning lottery ticket goes to the lawyer to fund the um, his work to get Sonny uh, his green card, right? Because he's a he's a dreamer. Uh, he's he's undocumented. 
Um, that's where the lottery money goes, right? Not to paying the rent, not to, to funding dreams, because also because um, um, uh, Usnavi, the main character, he had the money to pay for the um, uh, his father's bar to begin with. He didn't need additional money for that either. I mean, like everyone is struggling for sure, and everyone could certainly have used that money, but uh, it doesn't take on the ma- the significance that you would have expected and, and is led up to believe. And it just kind of like you know circles back at the end. Um, in a in a way that I, I would add is that uh, in a different way that uh, from I understand it, it plays out in the stage show. It kind of the, the drama is staged uh, much much differently um, in that way. So all that is to say, like the, the money isn't really that important, and it definitely is not the case. Like the, he wins the lottery and is able to um, to bankroll his girlfriend's hipster clothing <laughs> operation, which would be hilarious if, that, if that's the direction that it went. I, I guess perhaps in it, it, no, not I was not saying. Oh my god, that's no, not you need, it doesn't at all. You need an order of magnitude more money to launch a fashion line. That's Come on, that's you know, it's not, it's not, this is not two thousand five. Everybody, I mean, ninety six thousand dollars will, will will buy you like I don't know uh, a few thousand Instagram followers, and that's like barely enough to get you off the one ground. by <laughs> one year at Spence. <laughs> um, yeah, I I like I think that that I uh, gosh how how to put this I think that the, that really looking at it in this way i think we're talking in a way that's maybe skew to the priorities that um that our our close first friend of the show lin manuel miranda we'll just call him lmm um you know had when when writing these songs i think that that you know i i think that this is more it's it's almost better to understand it a little more in the sense of a uh, a review you know, in yeah. the in the sense mm. of like, uh, you know, and that's like, oh, is it a character study? Yeah, it is. If the character is kind of a time and a place, you know, and and a, a sort of shifting set of tensions and people, you know, uh, scratching out their life as people have always scratched out their lives uh, in in uh, you know different conditions. But like, but these are our people and these are our conditions, right? I think the re- kind of a relevant set of questions for the the artistic impulse behind the musical is a, a set of questions along the lines of who deserves to be on stage on Broadway? You know, who deserves to be sung about? Like whose whose lives are dramatic, are, you know, have enough sort of poetry in them, uh, has, uh, right? Like in order, is it just, uh, is it just like, um, uh, Midwesterners and, uh, and, uh, right. Don't forget and, French I, I think at this point, it's just, sure. it's just Billy Joel, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it's him and like maybe Frankie Valley sometimes, sure. the touring company. Yeah. I'm trying, I mean, I'm trying to think. There was a pop musical, you know, um, D- d- huge gaps in my knowledge, but like rent was rent was the nineties. Like, uh, the, the Tony for best musical in t- no, sorry. I'm, I'm a decade off. Yeah. I guess, I guess it was like Broadway had really gone jukebox, jukebox musically. Um, though, like honestly, the Billy Shoal Joe, the, the, the Billy Shoal Joe, the Billy Joel <laughs> show. <laughs> um, called moving out was a, was a ballet, like was a Twyla Tharp choreographed ballet. So there is this like, you know, avant-garde choreographer at the center of, the, at the center of the sort of surefire bet, um, like, uh, you know, long running jukebox musical, uh, that, you know, was a blockbuster at the time, but that like, you know, also a lot of revivals. Like I remember seeing a revival of kiss me Kate with uh, Brian Stokes Mitchell at, at this point. And, and there also were, I mean, I guess there are like a couple of shows that are considered the, like the, like the ethnically specific shows, you know, where like this, (laughs) this is the one show where there can be some black people on Broadway, like as, as main characters or, or, um, you know, other things like that. And that, that like into this, you know, into this environment sort of explodes, uh, Lin-Manuel with like a, a really contemporary sound and, and all the, all the sort of, um, not subtlety is the, all the, you know, all the kind of like the verbal fireworks, you know, of, of any really great 
Broadway lyricist, except with a completely different range of reference and with a kind of like, with like a sort of sly, a slyness kind of tweaking it. And like, and the, the message, the message a little bit is just that like we're here. Like this, this was a thing that. Uh, this was a thing that existed. And, and this, like, this has roots in, in protest art. Like, I, I recall, like, a really moving experience I had in the theater seeing, uh, a group from California, uh, from, um, San Francisco originally out of the San Francisco Chicano arts movement called Culture Clash. And they made a show, uh, in the early 2000s called Chavez Ravine. And it was about the neighborhood, uh, the largely Mexican neighborhood that was just bulldozed, that was just cleared out and bulldozed to make way for Dodger Stadium um, a, a long time ago. And the they are, because it was sort of at this, you know, agitating, uh, agit... Uh, no, not agitprop. That's the wrong word. But it, because it was this protest art and the kind of the protest and the, the message was, was very front and center. Like they actually had a character say at the end, like the, like the spirit of the past of Chavez Ravine to, uh, you know, come in and, um, you know, come in and show up on stage and like say, here's what the message of this, of this, uh, <laughs> of this piece of, of theater is. Okay. Uh, Deus ex machina came down and it was, um, you know, look, we know it's gone, but we just want you to know that there was a community here and there, there were like people living their lives and some of the things that they did were beautiful and some of the things they did were, were crappy. And, you know, they, they had triumphs and they had hardships and, and, you know, they had like a particular party that they would hold every third Friday of the month and would, you know, have a big barbecue all together and you know, play music and that, right? Like, but, but there were people here and that like the, the lives of these people mattered and like a little bit when you, when you are are you know sitting there um when you're sitting there watching a, a dodger game you know um and uh they used they used a couple of of like latin dodger players to sort of focalize this argument through like remember that the, there is sort of a history here and that these people mattered and i feel i feel like to to a certain extent the the um that message is what the, you know, is the, the message, the kind of the, the artistic concern that, that the play is concerned with, which is why like one of the most important things in it is the, the sequence of flag or like all the, the block party number where everyone, you know, does their flag, their flag of sort of ethnic origin or sort of descent, right? Like, and the, the, uh, PR flag and the Dominican flag and the Brazilian flag and the, you know, Mexican flag. And these things come out because it's like, it's a little bit like, like saying, you know, um, these, these things are awesome. These flags are awesome. (laughs) You know, like there, there is an awesomeness, uh, uh, both in, both in the colloquial awesome and both in the, uh, the Bill and Teddian, the, the Preston and Loganian and, uh, and the, um, uh, and in the sense of inspiring awe senses, right? Like the, uh, there is an awesomeness to the, uh, to the people and to their, to their heritage and that there's, there's something to be proud of. Anyway, that was, sorry, that was a long, long disquisition, but I think a lot of the, I, I think a lot of the things that we might find mm, jarring or even a little unsatisfactory. And, and I, again, I don't want to, to, um, wade into something I'm really not qualified to do, which is this sort of the talk about like Afro Latin representation in, in, this movie or in media generally, but like, I think a lot of the dissatisfaction, uh, with this might come from us being in a different, a, a different cultural climate with a different set of, um, needs and expectations than the ones that were faced by the creators of this show vis-a-vis Broadway musicals specifically in, you know, early in, in, during the, the second Bush administration. Anyway. Yeah. So I'll I'll unpack that with the one very obvious thing, the, um, the revolutionary elephant in the room, which is Hamilton, right? Like we, we, most people are coming to in the Heights by way of Hamilton. Right. And you feel like there's this, um, heightened, if you will, expectation for uh, in the Heights coming from uh, from someone who, who saw Hamilton is like, oh, this is like, you know, I'm expecting a work of genius on par 
uh, with Hamilton. And um, the stakes are not going to simply be uh, we are here, as you just described it, Matt, um, but more along the lines of um, we are here. We have always been here and we are everything, which is kind of like what what the, what the stakes of Hamilton are. Um, is that what you were getting at? Yeah, with the, kind of the, the expectations of now versus versus when the show came out. Yes, King. High high key serving realness. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> well, so Mark, wait, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that was that, so. That's my main point there. I think your Matt, the other thing you were talking about, alluding to, or like you know, um, kind of the progressive politics broadly speaking, um, as they've evolved since the two thousands and you know into the twenty twenties, um, and expectations there are different and greater right, than like they were in, at the time right you can, you can imagine a, a you can imagine a very valuable consciousness raising movement uh in you know at, at the time that's like hey george bush is america that there is a you know <laughs> there is a thing you know there is a a large uh, Spanish, diverse Spanish speaking community, um, from all over a big area of the world, Central and South America. And, and, you know, you might want to know something about it. You can imagine that being a very, uh, a path breaking, um, thing at the time. And, and it's, it's great that, that, that we've moved on. But I think that, that we can maybe lose sight of what the value of that was at the time, sure. you know, because yeah. our modern, our modern problems are, you know, slightly different. Yeah, and and one other thing, like important to mention, uh, in these expectations shifting and and the change they made, I think was, and in, in total a detriment to the movie, which is that the two most political plot points of the movie um, were add-ons. We're not in the original stage production, right? One about how Gina, um, or sorry, Nina, um, felt alienated at Stanford um, for all sorts of different reasons, but uh, sort of the microaggressions and like being mistaken for the help. Is like is a specific call out, and that was made for the movie. And the other one was Sonny being a dreamer, right? That was not a plot point in the stage show as well. And so, like, um, I, I, I for one thought that those felt out of place. And in this discussion here about the original aim and kind of the overall artistic project for the show, it's like it's really clear why why that is. I think if I might offer another comparison, just sort of literary in terms of literary history, like this is a catalog of the ships show, right? Like the second book of the Iliad is the catalog yes. of the ship. Yeah. Right? Hundo P. Yeah. Oh, no. So, so this is a very, very old literary tradition. The second book of the Iliad, it usually comes second in the thing. It's the second book of the Iliad. It's the second part of the book of Genesis, right? And it, and it pops up a lot in the Bible and a lot in, in pretty much most oral traditions. There is going to be a list of like the people. In the, in the Iliad, it's these are the Greeks who got in their boats to sail to Troy to fight in the Trojan War. And we're going to remember their names. They will be remembered in glory, right? And all of these names are being honored by being recited by these poets again and again over time. Right. And then this and and these sort of big epic literary projects that these things tend to be part of, which are often seen as foundational documents for pre-national or pseudo-national cultures. Right. Um, What is it that, you know, why are people reciting the same poem over and over again? We often forget about the function of it as a history and how the function of it as a history is not different. Well, not it's different, but it's not separate from the function of it as a story. And so because part of telling the story is to remember that the people were there. And so part of remembering that they were there is telling these great deeds in this way that everybody's going to remember. But it also involves like listing and honoring who they were and remembering them. Right. And so I think part of why the dreamer plot and the microaggression plot or at least the dreamer plot point and the microaggression plot point don't make sense in this story is that this is a story about the glories of these people and how they belong. It is yeah. not a story about how they don't belong. And there and it is not a story about the voices of the other people who are telling them that they don't belong. Like you don't write the Iliad. The Iliad isn't like these are the people who went to fight in Troy and the Trojans were really good at what they did. And a lot of them, you know, died and and were ineffective or scared. Right. <laughs> like like it exaggerates, you know, the fact that these they were here. Right. You know, it's the name carved in the in the stone. Right. Um, these people, we were here, right? You know. Um, yeah, and here's another moment that really uh, illustrates this well: is that I think I could be wrong, but uh, one of the very few uh, times that you see the police in this movie, and not just the police, the NYPD with all their issues, right? Um, is that um, two characters are crossing the street, and the cop bleep bleeps the horn at them to get out of the way, and they just move on, 
from there. Yeah. Right. There's no stop and frisk in this yeah. movie. <laughs> there is. Uh, there's certainly no Black Lives Matter in this movie. That sort of tension, um, or the sense of like, you know, we are this oppressed minority um, for the is not here, right? Because it's a celebration of how great how great the place is. Yeah. It would be out of it would be out of step. But I Pete, mean, it reminds. Oh, yeah. yeah. Go no, the oh. the I, I want to go in a different direction. So you finish this. Cash oh, this I was just I was just going to say it reminds us me of something else we talked about recently, which was the HBO Watchmen show, right? Where in the alternate version of you know post reparations Oklahoma, there's a black production of Oklahoma, right? That's being produced, and and this show does remind me of Oklahoma somewhat because it's sort of like these people live in this great place and they're all doing great. Is like a big sort of part of the and then, of course, in Oklahoma, that's put under jeopardy and it's kind of problematized and there's other stuff that happens to it. But but like in the you you don't go to the production of Oklahoma uh, is particularly the black production of Oklahoma to really learn about all the problems of the black people. Right. Like that's not the point uh, in that particular show of why everybody goes to see black Oklahoma. Right. Like that's not that's not why you do it. And I think that there is something to be said for the purpose of the piece uh, and, and just, and also like if you, if you sort of put down a thesis statement and you're supporting it and you're tonally supporting it and your music supports it uh, just how maybe it can, it, it's one of those, uh, the, the subconscious mind of the audience can be confused and distracted. If you later as, as what, I mean, it reminds me of what we saw Edward Albee. Uh, were you at the Edward Albee talk, Matt um, at Yale back in like 2002? I don't um, think so. Yeah, I saw him give a talk there at the at the theater, and he definitely and one of the things he said at the talk was uh, he would never revise, go back and revise one of his plays that he wrote when he was younger because he's a different person now, and he would never want somebody else to change his work, <laughs> right? Mm. And it's and it's so it's like this is there's a reflection here that Lin Manuel Miranda himself has somewhat changed, and I guess presumably, you know, I don't know how much the other writers like uh, was it Chiara Alegria Hudes. Um, how much, uh, what a role they had in rewriting this. There's a bunch of other, right. Um, I guess it's Chiara Alegria Hudes. I don't know who, I don't know who wrote it. Right. I don't know who made the changes. She did. She um, wrote the, the screenplay and she was the book writer for the, you know, for the, um, for the original show. So she wrote the, the, the story around the, the, and the dialogue and stuff like that around the songs and the, and the, uh, the lyrics though, those, they, they tend to be, like musicals tend to be very collaborative. So there are a lot. There are a lot of yeah. cooks. Right, right, and it's like in the meantime, she's won like the Pulitzer Prize twice, right, <laughs> or whatever. So like she's had a lot going on, right? So oh, she's a finalist, and then she won in twenty twelve. So like she's moved on a lot too, and has a lot of different feelings about things. So you know, it it makes sense that they would want to make some tweaks. But it's but also, I mean, I, mean yeah. I think it's Pete. I think it's interesting, like the 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 stuff you're saying about. The, the stuff that you said about about like th- there is an interesting like generational thing happening here, you know, um, like to the next generation. This is this is where we were born. Right. Like and we, and we have like we have positive associations with this neighborhood because it was, you know, because it was our home and our parents who made good by and large. Right. Like uh, this. Right. This this like the it's not a play that concerns itself really with with grinding poverty. You know, the the Jimmy Smith's character is a is a you know, reasonably successful businessman. And he's getting out. I of the- started with only two Cadillacs. Remember? <laughs> it's like, Oh right. yeah. Two Cadillacs. <laughs> like, again, probably must not be- the most expensive Cadillacs. Must be nice. So it must be nice. <laughs> yeah. But that like, you know, that, that, and he's getting, he's getting, I love the, the bit about it. He's getting out at exactly the right time. Like sell, yes. sell your gypsy <laughs> cab company you know, in the, in the mid 20, in the mid, uh, in the mid noughts. Um, but that like, uh, that, you know, this two immigrant stories are, are told all the time with a, with home in the background, you know, and from generation to generation, home shifts and, and what home is. And that, that like is also a feature of a lot of a lot of immigrant stories of sort of, you know, second generation, um, Americans. I mean, it's, I'm most familiar with it with American stories so like second generation americans are like but this is my home but then also there is this this lineage that's passed down and it's very important and i don't know how to reconcile you know if only we had a second generation american right. on the podcast who could talk about this but the hmm. where could he be? 
but then but then the third yeah yeah but then the third yes i i i, I co-signed her with the user so far as a second generation okay but then but then right it's like it's like if Mark wanted to write a musical about uh, y'all's y'all's Hell's Kitchen walk up, you know? <laughs> Do you remember yeah. that? Because there's a third level here, which is the the thing I'm trying to get at is that there's there's like there's you know there's sort of a third level here where it, where it's like the the home is uh, the home is sort of a lost paradise, right? It's it's sort of related to. Uh, as a lost paradise and there's there's an almost sort of ultra short-term nostalgia <laughs> you know there's like a an right like an almost like uh momentarily arising nostalgia for the for the sort of things we have and i i think it's not i think it doesn't totally make dramatic sense with the specifics of the characters who are who are in in this uh particular show but that it like it's a it's a kind of story that we're it's a kind of story that we are familiar with and so it's it's there are sort of tropes of it that there are sort of tropes of it that come up a lot um uh, the the story of the kind of the lost paradise of of sort of the lost home you know uh and and you think you know and let's let's keep it with with epic poetry you think that that usnavi is going to be odysseus right and like after after 10 long years of his voyage you know um many of which uh he was he was stranded on the uh on the the bodega of calypso you know <laughs> like <laughs> right you think that that he is going to return to to ithaca right slaughter the slaughter the the rats you know that have that have infested the broken down bar and like restore restore it to its to its former glory you know and that that's not um uh that's that's one story um but but that that kind of competes with the story of of this this actually this this moment like and the you know the people who say washington heights and the people who pronounce it as a spanish speaker would uh, more like washington heights are like this is important because like it does a it it does a little work um it does a little work mythologizing right it does a little work of kind of carving this space out as our space and that this is the this is the sort of city on a hill that's the the kind of the the lost the lost paradise but oh. it you know it's lost in happening it, like a it's not exactly lost b the loss is in progress and so the nostalgia is probably has probably arrived too early and and c uh oh i forget you know i forget what what C was, but I, you know, my point, my point is there, there are kind of different tropes around these, these immigrant stories and these stories about sort of being separated, separated from home. And I think that accounts for some of the confusion in maybe like the Busby Berkeley number at the pool, which is, you know, about, um, you know, awesome th- thinking about like awesome stuff, like what you would do if you won the, what you would do if you won the lottery, uh, the, the block party number, which is about, you know, how, how great it is, how awesome we all are who, who live here and how awesome it is that we have our, you know, we have our, different backgrounds and we kind of come together and make this new new thing and the woman who sings the like the the litany of kind of multi hyphenate uh central and south american or you know names um ethnicities and like it's like i own all that how how that's great uh but then also like the the um what you say that the uh the claustrophobia of it the fact that like this is another a lot of it takes place in a blackout but this is another uh uh, this is another um, work of, of film art where no one seems to have a 60 watt light bulb. You know, this is another work of, of film art where the, the walls seem the walls of these fairly spacious and reasonably nice apartments seem sort of oppressive. Um, and, you know, they're all brown. Right? They're all like they're all these these uh, dark colors. and They seem to be sort of pressing in, pressing in from all sides. And I guess like there's a there's a confusion of the past and the present and maybe that's that's what oh that's what that, i'm getting at 
this is a great time to talk about Abuela's subway ride into the surreal. See, I loved that. I loved that yeah. number. You know, I, it I don't was think, cool. it, it, it I was, don't think it was it from the show. It, yeah, 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 yeah. It felt very separated from the pool number from the block party number. Um, and and well, here we are slightly con- uh, impressed and also confounded by it. Right. So just for those who haven't seen this, just to catch people up. Right. Uh, Abuela is this character who is uh, not Dominican, not Puerto Rican, but Cuban. Right. Um, she comes to this country from Havana, uh, I think, in the 40s. Um, hard scrabble life, you know, works her way up cleaning floors and things like that. It's not really the, the grandmother per se, but she's like the matriarch of the community. Right. And she goes on this nostalgia trip. Uh, it's like kind of when exactly it happens is a little bit ambiguous. I think it's like kind of like prior to the blackout um, and just reminisces about her life and the community that she has now. And the, the I think the refrain is paciencia y fe, right? Patience and faith. Um, you know, like the, 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 the values that have um, allowed her to persevere and to help build a community and then she dies the night of the blackout um it seems like implied that like you know, kind of her journey is complete um and that she has arrived and like and the community is whole at least like at the point of her passing that was the way that i interpreted it at least um but it was it was jarring for all the reasons we just described um so for uh, either the artistic interpretation or kind of like just like um the the, the facts and and how that lays into the story there um agree or disagree yeah, yeah, that that's a. I don't know how it was staged in the in the show, but that's a number where see one of the best things you can do in theater if you have a great performer is just you park them down center and they sing the song like in a spotlight and nothing else happens right like there and that's one of those songs that like oh I, I wish I could have seen it I you know I wish I could have seen a uh, like a powerful performance of that. Uh, in a dark theater where it's just one person sort of going through it and laying it out, you know, but the, the, cause I, I, yeah, I just, I, I really liked the number and I liked sort of what it, what it was doing there because I think one, one of the things that the show is, is trying to say and, and, and maybe doesn't quite have it together enough to articulate clearly is that there's a cost, right? Like there's a cost to these things that it's Mm. not just, uh, uh, you know, even, even sort of beyond, even in success, you know, even beyond the kind of the overt racism of uh, that immigrants face. And even, uh, even when, when you sort of do really well, you know, there's, there's sort of a cost in, in, you know, the use of your life in, in, making one of these sort of passages in, in, in place in, in time from, from one place to another. And I just thought it was, it was articulated. Well, I, I also think it was out of a different, it was just out of a completely different um, representational playbook than the, than the ones used in the rest of the show. I don't know, Pete, sorry. I didn't mean to, to butt in there. No, no, it's okay. Um, yeah. I mean, this was a part of the show where I started figuring out what was going on. Um, I mean, Okay. So there's two things, right? One is the two topics I think that we're on right now. One is how does Abuela's journey relate to the larger question of a uh, we were here story. We are we were here. We are here. We will continue to be here story um, and the notion of a lost paradise and an immigrant journey. And I think the way that it works is that. She dies. She is in conflict between whether she ought, given the opportunity to live in the United States or in Cuba, once we're in a situation where she can return, which I don't think she would have been able to. Was she able to do that in 2005? Um, Maybe in 2008? No, not yet. Right. So that's another thing that's kind of changed. Right. Is that she could have moved back, at least visited a little bit more at the now than she could have then. Um, there's just so many things that have changed even since this musical came out. But the point is that she has the choice, but it comes too late and she dies. And the lottery ticket ends up being her bequeathing that choice to her grandson to say, you can either stay in New York City or you can go back to the Caribbean. And that's sort of her what she leaves him. Her, right? her spiritual grandson. Her, her spiritual, oh, it's not her grandson. She's not, she's not his, his abuela. She's not anybody's abuela, really. I she's, couldn't hear any of the dialogue. She's, not, <laughs> she's, no one, she's no one's abuela, but she's everyone's abuela. I was very confused because he was a Puerto Rican actor playing a Dominican character with a Cuban grandmother, and I didn't understand who anybody was. Okay, great. But by the end of it, when I was watching on my phone, I could at least hear the dialogue. Okay, cool. So, so yeah, but the idea is that abuela's spiritual grandson 
uh, inherits her choice, which she has earned through the work of her life. And it becomes something of a remittance, right? This can either be like, you can either repatriate this money back to the homeland, which is a big part of what we do, um, or you can invest it here, right? Which is also a big part of what we do. However, that aside, the other topic is how does it function as a performance number? And I agree, it's very different from the rest of the show. Or at least there's other there are certain other numbers that are like this number that seem to have been made on their own with a singer that they have a lot of confidence in uh, in terms of being able to perform the song and then either overdub it in a way that matches their facial expressions or like whatever. And then there's other parts of it. This is, I guess, where we get into the sort of fraying kind of like not quite together editing and directing of some of these sequences. It just it just feels like it's not quite the best work in terms of like adapting it to film. Uh, and and I think you we were talking about this ahead of time and we compared it to a fat Steven Seagal movie. Right. And that, that like and like the fatter Steven Seagal got and the older he got, the more the less you would ever see him actually punch someone. And the more you would just see the camera cut from like his angry face to someone else's face going right? like it'd be like bah, bah, bah. and how Jackie Chan would make fun of him by saying the more you move the camera, the less you can. Actually well, he's, fight. Yeah, I'm not sure he Jackie Chan was actually making fun of, of Steven Seagal, but I'm very fond of an interview that Jackie Chan gave, which is excerpted in the Jackie Chan action comedy episode of every, every frame of painting, which is an awesome YouTube series that everyone should watch all of, uh, because it's great. Um, but that like, uh, says if, if you see the camera moving, the actor doesn't know how to fight, right? The, the, um, you know, because, and all of his, and then, and then this is illustrated in this, in these film essays that, uh, you know, in this particular film essay with, with examples of Jackie Chan movies where the camera doesn't move. The camera's just in this locked off shot and Jackie's doing all of this stuff in and around all of this interesting architecture with other performers who are great fighters, you know, and like it's all cool and the camera doesn't move. So the, the, the hits are real and they're the, the moves are real, right? Like, and people can actually sort of do those things with their bodies rather than like doing two thirds of it. And then your brain, like constructing it as, you know, as a closure with a, with a cut. And I, you know, ever since Moulin Rouge, um, a, a film that I feel like it's my penance to say Pete was right about all along, uh, and that I was briefly taken in by as a as a younger person. Um, the the kind of the move has been to do all these musical numbers with all this cutting, right? With just just edit, 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 edit. Like it's like it's GI Jane or something. <laughs> like yeah, I don't know. I just remember that film being particularly frenetic in terms of the pace of its editing, and that like. Um, you know that that the 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 whole point, the whole thing that makes uh, musicals great is you go and watch people sing and dance, which is like fun and cool. <laughs> and that yeah. like, and that like, if you don't, and it's not even like okay, we get some movie stars, we get some movie stars, and like they can't totally sing and dance. Though I don't know, I I like the 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 ballet uh, in and among the. Um, in and among the fire escapes that goes kind of gravity, gravity sideways, uh, for a little while. I wish they had found ways to use that architecture a little more, uh, interestingly, like up and down on the fire escapes or something like that, rather than just kind of dodging around them. But it was maybe all CGI anyway. I don't know. But the, the, in the, in the production numbers, those are, it, was, it wasn't all CGI. There was a lot, there was a whole fire escape. They were harnessed up. Oh, really? It was very, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's touched up, but yeah. Um, so the, it's Corey Hawkins didn't think he was going to be the one to do it. He thought there that he was going to have a stunt double dancer who oh, would do this thing instead. Huh. And then it's like, nope, you're going to do it. He's like, okay, I'll do it. Okay, <laughs> well, good, <laughs> good yeah. for him. Yeah. But that, like, um, you know, the, the in the production numbers, right in the block party, I, the, you, you're hiring a whole bunch of background people who who are expert dancers, right? And like, I, I want to watch them dance. Let me watch the dancing. I, I want to see. I want to see some dancing. And to me, like. I it's either I it's not a fat Steven Seagal thing because the at least certain of them are are specialists hired for particularly this skill and this aptitude you know so so I you know I don't know I just I I have a bone to pick with the the edit the modern editing of of these musical numbers that just doesn't show doesn't show the dancers in a way that really conveys the 
the awesomeness of what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. I'm less critical of the choreography and the editing as you're describing it, because my baseline comparison at this point for music, movie musicals, at least in terms of how not to do it, is the recent adaptation of Les Miserables. <laughs> which I believe we skewered uh, on this for it's just uh, dull and unimaginative um, cinematography. And if you'll unfortunately remember Tom Hooper just kind of like thinking this brilliant idea. What if we just stick the camera right in front of the singer's face and just hold it there and to keep holding it and just have that be a big chunk of the show? Um, truly awful. Um, but my mind Man. just like keeps going back there. A technique, a technique he pioneered. My, my, my bar has been gotten very low. Oh, yeah. He, he pioneered the technique in the King's speech. And, yeah. uh, though, if you are going to, to stick a camera in, in, like deep in the face of an actor, two of the most interesting actors you could do that to are Jeffrey Rush and Colin Firth. <laughs> Um. Yeah. Well, I guess it's better. It's better than Les Mis. The 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 editing better than better than Les well, Mis. Yeah. There you go. Like, my my gut feeling watching this was something went wrong when they were shooting it, and the only reason it's being edited like this is they're covering something up. Um. And maybe that's wrong. It's interesting that it's like a style that even if it's deliberate, led at least me and perhaps you too to assume. That it's communicating that there are errors being made that aren't that aren't appropriate for the level of skill of the performers, right? Like something's off, something's wrong. I would love to hear the stories of producing this because, I mean, for example, in certain cases, it sounds like the singers are being overdubbed. In other cases, it seems like the singers aren't being overdubbed. There are a lot of songs where the camera is not on the singer's face. Like, like not even at all. Like, like a person starts singing and they immediately turn away from the camera. Yep. Right. And and it's like, like, uh, the I noticed that of, also. Yeah. And it's weird. It's, it's strange. Right. Even the beginning of the fire escape sequence, there's a lot of sort of like tucking your head down by your shoulder or like slightly turning away. And I wonder if they did that to hide the fact that they were going to be doing some overdubbing and they didn't want things to not match. But then it just made it weird that it was like that. Right. So it's it's uh, it's strange. So, again, this isn't the sort of dominant thing about the movie, but it was definitely something that uh, adapting musicals is really hard. Even filming filming movie musicals is really tough. Um, and I don't think that I would say I mean, again, what this makes me want to do is go back and watch, like, step up to the streets and see if, like, this is a characteristic of John Shue musicals or whether there was something in the production of this particular movie that. uh that like needed that needed something extra that it didn't quite have. John Chu, um, reading up on John Chu, I uh, I discovered that that he like he was put in tap classes as a kid, and he took tap for like twelve or or you know some like up to eighteen or something. He took tap dancing, so you know tra- trained trained dancer. Yeah, <laughs> John yeah. Chu. <laughs> yeah, this is the. I mean, he he. This is the director of Justin Bieber. Never say never. He understands like elite high quality musical and dance performance. (laughs) 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 This is sorry. Um, And it just, it was funny. It was funny. I thought that in marketing this movie, they were like, it's by the director of crazy rich Asians where it's like, well, yeah, but he also did two of the step up movies, you know, which are more similar to this movie. Uh, it's interesting that that was the thing that had some currency, which is great. You know, it's a famous movie. It's relatively recent. It also has to do with representation. It was interesting that in terms of this movie being like a fun musical and also a movie about representation, how they chose to promote it uh, in different situations, because Hmm. I'm wondering, I, I often wonder whether these things are like, whether they made the right call. Did they test it? Right. And they're like, well, if we try to sell this as a hardcore, if it's hardcore, if we try to sell this as like a really fun musical event that everyone will like. And we just assume that, like, because it has representation in it and it all speaks for itself and it comes with this power, we don't have to tell everybody about the representation or like is the main draw of this the representation. And we need to tell everybody about that up front because that's what's important right now to the audience. And that's what they want to see. Right. Like because either way, it comes with both. It's got giant dance numbers and it's got a ton of representation, though, of course, you know, with the the criticisms therein, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And John Chu has both of those things on his resume as well. So uh, it is interesting. I wonder what is a project he could do that would combine both of them again? Something something with a lot of dancing and a lot of uh, and a lot of complex politics Mm -hmm. that you you can make an earnest attempt at, but never really do to everybody's satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see. Um, but well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's good. But uh, yeah, no, not not a not a hardcore musical. Just want to keep our our chili peppers <laughs> down. I mean, this isn't Stephen Sondheim's passion, am I right? This is a show where there are scenes where everybody is like sitting around, and then they get up and they stand in a grid. And they all dance in unison and it's like passed off entirely as something normal. This is like, we're a freaking musical, right? Like deal with it. Right. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it, it felt very retro at times. It felt like something from the thirties or forties, except of course that in the thirties or forties, they wouldn't be telling the story about these people. Right. It would yeah. be about clam diggers or about, you know, like people at a rodeo, right. Or people at a different rodeo or like, you know, a kid growing up amid the tall grass, Right, those like, were those no. those shows. Like, let's not give short shrift to to Rogers and Hammerstein. Like those those shows were really path breaking at the time. You know, coming into a, a an atmosphere of like follies and you know uh, of hardcore musicals. Yeah, more 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 light <laughs> entertainments. And here come Rogers and Hammerstein with these hardcore musicals. You know, and that's uh, that's uh, that's passion passions. Stephen Son- Stephen Sondheim's passion. Passion, not passions. No, passion, passions is a soap opera. <laughs> Stephen yeah. Sondheim's passions With is a soap, <laughs> <laughs> it's a soap opera. I'd pay to watch Stephen Was, Sondheim. Is Passions the worst named show ever? Just because I think it had lots of ghosts and magic in it, right? And so it's like, uh, if you wanted to watch a soap opera about ghosts and magic. And oh, the, God. I, I know. I don't know. It's I know a long time. very little about soap operas and I know less about that particular one i'm sure um, i just identified it terribly well but. it's it's clear that we've uh it's clear that we've exhausted the topic so maybe we'll <laughs> maybe we'll leave it there but uh you know please let us know what you thought of it in the heights in the comments on the show notes of uh, the episode uh thanks for listening to it and thanks mark and pete as always for podcasting with me we'll be back next week with more overthinking it uh american muscle edition but uh, yeah, I know I'm excited. Till then, <laughs> till till the inevitable family barbecue that closes out the podcast. You can reach us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. I'm really looking forward to the Mer sequel in the depths. 